0: Welcome to the podcast against disease presented by Humanity Against Disease. Is there anything else I'm supposed to say, Cody?
1: You no, know, I think those are the things.
0: I okay. <laughs>
1: welcome, welcome, everyone in the podcastery.
0: <laughs> so this is our sequel to Diet Pop. In our series of How Bad Is It? Episode 2, Part B, we are examining the dangers of sitting.
1: As we examine the dangers of having a really effed up numbering system.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the number may change. Um, so, Cody, I think I'm going to outbad you on this podcast. That's just my bet because I think I'm better at finding worse things than you are. I want to know, first off, how do you sit? How much do you sit in a day? What do you think about your sitting?
1: I think that I probably sit too much, and I'm really nervous about this one because not only are we <laughs> sitting while we record this podcast, I think one of my favorite things about psychiatry is that we don't have to stand very often.
0: <laughs>
1: and I think this is going to come back to me.
0: <laughs> I think it might change your entire paradigm. Dang it. <laughs>
1: We need to start getting kickbacks from the standing desk people if this all pans out.
0: <laughs> well, we need to discuss the evidence for standing desks as well, which we will do. So first off, I present you with a choose-your-own-adventure, Cody. Do you want to know about the paradigm of sitting first, or do you want to know about the history?
1: Let's start with the history.
0: Okay. So I have some cool snippets of history to share with you. So we're kind of going to be looking at sitting from... From a more holistic perspective, but I mean, generally, people who are interested in sitting are people who study occupational health and want to make their workers the best they can be so we can run our capitalist society. Yeah. The, <laughs> the uh, One of the first people who looked into sort of uh, behaviors and sedentary behavior was um, this really cool guy named... Bernardino Ramazzini.
1: Okay.
0: He, is, he was uh, born in Carpi, Italy, which is near Modena. Um, I have no idea where any of those places. is. <laughs> but you have to watch Chef's Table, or you have to watch um, the show with Aziz, I'm sorry, whose name I'm forgetting. Master of None. There's a lot of Modena that happens in both of those things. There's a lot of good, like, pasta and risotto and cheese that comes from Modena.
1: Dag. Okay.
0: <laughs> Um, so this guy, Ramazzini, uh, he was a physician. He studied, I think in like the 1600s and he was, um, one of the first physicians who was looking into the health of workers. He actually studied medicine and philosophy. So maybe that's what made him so insightful. But he was the one who first noted that there was a relationship between sedentary behavior and sort of bad health consequences. And he noticed this in workers whose jobs required them to sit for long hours, okay. which I'm not sure what exactly some of those jobs were in the 1600s, but maybe you can postulate.
1: Yeah. Um, carcinogenic chemical observer, <laughs> specialist. Um, <laughs> Vagabond? No, that's actually less
0: sedentary. <laughs> um, next, um, one of the... So this was going on all the way back in the 1600s. Then we kind of jump forward to the 1950s. There's two main guys who are pretty cool. So there's this guy, um, J.N. Morris, who is a guy from England, and he found in the 1950s, 60s, that... Workers in jobs that require um, primarily sitting, like London bus drivers and mail sorters, had a higher chance of developing cardiovascular disease than workers who stood and walked during their job, like bus conductors and mailmen. Hmm.
1: Okay. And then. So, <laughs> so it comes back to the heart, the ultimate betrayer among the organs.
0: Oh, absolutely. The heart is the is big deal, and insulin, which we talked about last time. Okay, and then the third cool guy that I'm going to tell you about is John Homans. He was this guy... Oh, also, so J.H. Morris, he published in The Lancet, which is a big deal. Yeah. It's like the National Geographic of like science. For sure. It's um, like old sauce, too. <laughs> and then... So he was a cool guy. And the next guy is John Homans, who was also kind of researching in the 1950s. He was the guy that found that he f- he like found all these clinical cases of people who developed blood clots in their legs um, after sitting for a long time. He was actually looking at people who went to the theater and people who watched TV for long periods of time. Okay. <laughs> and then, Cody, do you remember that like super fun? This is like, like medicine nerd stuff, but also not. Um, it's like a physical exam. It's something you can do when you're examining somebody who comes in with a DVT. That is the Homans sign
1: the Homan sign is that is that the squeezing the calf one?
0: Yeah, yeah, so he was such a big deal that he like has his own physical exam finding named after him.
1: That's intense. So what is the Homan sign again? So you squeeze the calf and
0: oh okay, um yeah, so the Homan sign is when you get pain in your calf when you turn somebody's, like, toes up.
1: And then it hurts?
0: Yeah, it hurts, because you're, like, stretching their calf.
1: Oh, you're stretching the calf, and the blood vessel is messed up, so it can't handle it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it freaks out. Okay, so those are the cool guys in the history of um, sort of the hazards of sitting, of sedentary behavior. So now let's talk about sort of this just, like, paradigm, like, this, like, new thing that we're faced with. So there are a lot of like studies emerging that are showing that physical activity has been, you know, is consistently associated with the lower risk of diabetes, heart disease and dying early. So exercise is good for you. Yes. Yes. Big point. Huge point. But what's happening in modern society is that there are a lot of changes and we are all less active. So we spend a lot more of our time doing things like watching TV, being on the computer, playing video games, sitting while we're working, and sitting while we're getting from place to place. Staring at glowing rectangles. <laughs> Just like you and your job, Cody. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so all of these things make it less sort of demanding for us to be active. It's just, it's so much easier to sit. And oftentimes the way you get your work done or the way you do something is by sitting.
1: Yeah, and it always struck me as odd because there's really nothing intrinsically necessary about being in the seated position. It's just the way we've kind of chosen to do things. So I'm really interested to hear what it is about sitting that's the problem. Is it the the lack of movement? Is it the being upright and... On your glutes, or is it what goes on that makes standing or walking better?
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to share pretty much responses to all of those questions with yes.
1: you. I didn't even, I'm not even a plant.
0: <laughs> That's true. Cody knows nothing about the evidence. Coach. <laughs> um, so there is actually this um, US National Health Nutrition Examination Survey, not a like, fun name. It's NHANES. I guess that's what I'll call it or NHANES. Um, it was, need to get the acronym people on that. we do, we do. There's some other good ones that I'll talk about, but this one wasn't particularly great. Um, this was a study where they, um, took accelerometers, which I think is like a pedometer, like one of those just little things you sit on your waist.
1: Yeah. The only difference between an oh. accelerometer and a pedometer, cause I was in a physiology lab is the accelerometer tracks all motion whereas a pedometer just tracks like binary like clicks for steps
0: oh okay okay. a lot
1: more information on like velocity and like the difference between running and you you might even be able to see um the difference between high intensity and low intensity versus just like racking up
0: oh okay okay that that helps me understand that better um They looked at, they basically made um, a bunch of 6,000 adults who are 20 years of age or older put on accelerometers. And what do you think that the average amount of sedentary time in a day was for people across the different age categories?
1: Probably disgusting. Are we including sleeping?
0: I think not.
1: Not including sleeping, it's still probably like... 12 hours a day or something crazy maybe even more
0: you're such a pessimist cody but it's like it's 7.3 to 9.3 hours in a day
1: i'm pleasantly surprised
0: yeah which that's still a huge chunk of the day it is if somebody told me to sit for seven hours i'd probably go crazy but i do it anyways
1: I remember the old uh, stats, out. we'll have to do one on television watching itself at some point, but they used to say that people watch, the average person watches like four or five hours of TV a day. I feel like that can't possibly be the case anymore with the internet and everything.
0: Oh, yeah. I guess maybe we could just even examine screen time. Yeah. Meh. So that was the range of hours of sedentary time per day. And they found that older adults were the most sedentary and in terms of thinking about you know fractions because we love fractions and proportions um they found that 51 to 68% of adults total waking hours are spent sedentary
1: Ugh, what a waste <laughs>
0: um, so this study also kind of wanted to look at um how much time do people spend sedentary doing sort of light activity, which is kind of more just like walking, um, you know, folding clothes, uh, moving around, uh, you know, doing things that you normally do, like taking one paper from a desk to another, um, compared to high-intensity physical activity, traditionally um, exercise for most people, unless, you know, running away from something fearful is your job. Like a bullfighter probably does that on the job. This
1: goes back to my um, healthcare reform proposal, where what we should do is just release a certain density of tigers <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> um, right? Like, and we're gonna have to like make sure that we keep people off the streets. <laughs> we'll like have to step up our physical fitness programs. I don't know, avoid abandoned buildings where tigers can hide. It would just lead to all sorts of wonderful health consequences.
0: That's so true. I wonder why we haven't done that sooner.
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, it is cost prohibitive. <laughs> um,
0: so then, you know, the study was looking at whether sort of doing more, um, doing less sitting, what that means you do more of. And so they found that almost all the variation in how much time you spend sitting is usually replaced by the light intensity physical activity.
1: That makes a lot of sense because certainly most people, even very fit people, are not going to maintain heavy physical activity all day unless they're training for something in particular.
0: Exactly. Uh, And Interestingly, that's sort of the angle that this article... So the main article that I'm getting my um, data from is this Australian article by David Dunstan and other researchers called Too Much Sitting, A Health Hazard. Okay. And so this you know, idea of replacing sedentary activity with light intensity physical activity is the approach that they're taking to sort of improving health. And it seems like, you know, we've always been advocating for people to just go out and exercise. And that's going to replace all the sitting that you do. But this review article is really thinking about, well, we mostly replace the, the sedentary time with light activities. And what impact does that have on health? Because there's this fun little phenomenon called the active couch potato phenomenon.
1: Is this the idea of... Um even people who are active are often like, go out, do your gym thing for 30 minutes to an hour a day, and then go back to sitting on your butt. Exactly. Okay. I've, I've definitely lived that life for a very long time. <laughs> am my most healthy.
0: <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. Except for when I was a kid. I probably did a lot of just um, light um, physical, light intensity physical activity. So... Now that we have our sort of paradigm, you know, we're thinking about how our society has become much more sitting-oriented, and we really are thinking about replacing the sitting time with um, with light-intensity physical activity versus just encouraging everyone to become a CrossFit maniac. So, in that setting, what are sort of the links between sitting, or yeah, sitting, and dying early? There are sort of multiple studies that have shown that time that you spend sitting doing sedentary behaviors is independently related to having an increased risk for all kinds of, um, you know, death from all causes, and then also death from um, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, in Can both you men and hurt. women. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly the this association of dying having a higher risk of dying they're not affected by two important things your body mass and the time you spend in leisure versus that moderate to high intensity physical activity
1: so it doesn't the, this phenomenon is not related to being fat and it's not related to the presence or absence of Actually, getting your damn exercise in.
0: Yes, isn't this that terrifying? Is weird.
1: Okay, this is surprising.
0: <laughs> so there was a study by um, Matthews and other researchers in the NIH AARP Diet and Health Study. So they looked at 240,000 adults um, with ages 50 to 71 years, and one of the most interesting things that they found was. People who said that they did more than seven hours a week of moderate to high-intensity physical activity during their free time but who also watched TV more than seven hours a day had a 50% higher risk of death from all causes and twice the risk of dying from heart disease versus those who did the same amount of physical activity and watched TV for less than one hour a day.
1: So what seems to be coming together is that the key is this sort of light exercise category. That's interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah, and like the key is just to not sit.
1: Okay. So you may be getting to this, but is there a lot of looking into whether there's a big difference between standing and like meandering around, vacuuming your podcast loft?
0: I don't have specific data on standing versus meandering, but I think that both of them are better than sitting.
1: That makes sense. Because the one counterpoint I wonder about is in people with vascular problems and heart failure and things of that nature, you can't just stand up or eventually you're going to have all sorts of venous stasis issues. Mm -hmm. So I am curious as to the role of incorporating walking. But again, I think... um, this may end up leaving some some open questions at the end but
0: yeah yeah and I agree I was thinking about that as well in terms of okay if I just stand at work and if I just stand all day is that going to be good but then I think about how usually in the mornings if I'm in the hospital and I'm on my rounds with my team we are standing and then walking a little bit and standing for about four hours and I feel like it's makes my it would make my legs swell if I was standing all day
1: Yeah, I found that when I was on the internal medicine wards, having those compression socks was a godsend.
0: Did you like them? Oh, it was amazing. Okay.
1: But I will say that my bias is that standing in overheated patient rooms is not fun at all. (laughs) I once said that once you eliminate all of the human activities that are designed to cause suffering, like um, torture and genocide, rounding is one of the top (laughs)
0: <laughs> Hence your desire to go into psychiatry Where the model of rounding is very different
1: It is I mean I, I get it That it has to be that way But it would be really cool If we could figure out how not to be so damn hot
0: Yeah Maybe if you're just sitting on a stationary bike That wheels itself From room to room
1: I always thought like a Monsters Incorporated setup, where the patient rooms just wheel by us and we sit in the workroom and talk
0: to them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, Let's see. So next thing I'm going to talk about is that prolonged... So sitting is bad, right? But is it bad if you sit in short spurts during the day and then it adds up to seven hours? Or is it bad if you do like... 2 hours at a time without even moving. What's your hypothesis?
1: That's interesting. I seem to remember reading some of the popular press stuff about how there's like all these metabolic shifts. I wouldn't be surprised if short spurts are less harmful than longer spurts, especially because your like heart rate's not necessarily going to settle out, you're not going to have so much vascular stasis and so on.
0: What's um, vascular stasis?
1: Your blood vessels are not going to like your blood's not going to chill out and not move. Because for people who aren't familiar, there are two types of blood vessels. you got your arteries and your veins. Arteries are thicker, and that's where most of the action happens. And blood is sort of like, hurry up and get there, and then you can like lazily come back <laughs> when you're done doing your thing. So the veins, where we get all our blood draws from and whatnot, just kind of chill out. Most of the blood's actually hanging out in there and it gets pumped back to the heart by the action of the muscles so when you're sitting a lot of the blood is just lazily making its way back to the heart which is probably not ideal for metabolism and whatnot
0: that makes me think of uh, water slides that are like high intensity and then lazy rivers
1: yeah i think it's probably something like that <laughs> thank god for the lazy river like, what would you do just stand in the line all day
0: baking? oh my gosh but is a lazy river basically the sitting equivalent of swimming Stay tuned. (laughs) We may have to do an entire podcast on lazy rivers. Um, Be alert, be aware. So you're exactly right, Cody. There was a... There's two studies that I'll talk about. So one was this Australian diabetes, obesity, and lifestyle study, which was called OSTIAB. And they looked at um, data from 2004 to 2005. And they found that... You know, they put accelerometers on people and found that sitting was associated with cardiovascular risk factors, including having sort of a larger waist size, having a higher blood sugar level, having higher triglycerides, which is one type of cholesterol that you can have. And then interestingly, the adults whose sitting time was mostly uninterrupted, they had a poorer sort of health profile compared to those who interrupted their sitting or who had more frequent breaks to their sitting time. And interestingly, these associations they found to be true even when somebody, when they looked at how much time somebody spent sitting versus doing moderate to, to high intensity physical activity. Hmm.
1: The active couch potato situation strikes again, eh?
0: Yes, Exactly. Um, so it's it's just kinda crazy. It just makes me it, it it's educated me that you can't just go to the gym for two hours at the end of the day and wash away your sins of sitting.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. I think it brings it really highlights the idea that we've compartmentalized or maybe over compartmentalized life and we say like, okay, now you're being fit, now you're not and although I'm sure there's gotta be a role for like more intense exercise. And I hope we'll get to that in future episodes. It sounds like you really need to, if you want to live a fit life, you got to think about how to incorporate fitness into your whole day in some fashion. Okay.
0: Absolutely. That's definitely what I've been finding with this study. And so that was people in Australia. They looked at the NHANES data, and they looked at um, about 4,700 people aged greater than 20 years from 2003, 2004, and 2005, 2006. And they found this very similar um, sort of findings. And uh, uh, in that study, they found that total sitting time was associated with cardiometabolic biomarkers, which is kind of, you know, all those lab tests that tell you that you have um, higher risk of heart disease. And then inflammatory tests, blood tests as well, called CRP, which is something that kind of just tells you how much inflammation you have in your body, and inflammation is bad. Mm -hmm. And at the same time in that study, they found that, you know, having breaks in your sedentary time is positively associated with sort of having a smaller waist circumference, having a lower CRP, so lower inflammation in the body. And this was seen across all age groups, across gender, and then across ra- race and ethnicity groups as well. Okay.
1: Does it say exactly what kind of break pattern one needs to get these kinds of effects?
0: It, I'll have to look back at the study. I'm not sure what it said in that one, but I do have recommendations for how often to take breaks at the end. Awesome. Yes. So now that we've talked about, you know, we've talked about the history of people worrying about sitting, what's going on in society today that makes us sit more, sitting associated with dying earlier, and then sitting for a long period of time versus sitting, you know, with breaks of activity in between. So now what we're going to do is look at some experiments. So there's two in particular, and then... There's two that are just a little bit more interesting and wacky, but um, two good ones. So the first one is a study by a guy with the last name of Stevens. And let me just pull up his. So, oh, a woman, Brooke Stevens. Oh, dang. Oh, my gosh. Look at my terrible bias. (laughs) Um, Hashtag
1: steminism. Hashtag women in science.
0: Oh, I like that steminism. I like that. So Brooke Stevens did an experiment looking at young, non-obese, fit and healthy men and women who were told to sit for a day, and they looked at whole body insulin sensitivity. So kind of like what we were talking about with Diet Pop, how well your body responds to insulin, which is that signal, again, to tell your body to take up sugar in the blood, you know, as an energy source and store it away for, for fuel.
1: Yeah. And that so a good way to think about insulin sensitivity is that more is better. You can think of it as like your body's agility and its ability to respond to sugar insults. Like when you inevitably decide that it's time to have that piece of cake, if your body's more insulin sensitive, it'll know what to do with that cake instead of letting it hang out in your blood and the sugar wreak havoc on on your vessels and blood cells and all that jazz
0: exactly so they took these young healthy non-obese fit people and they had them sit for about 17 hours and they saw that the insulin sensitivity was significantly reduced after sort of this prolonged sitting and they found that you know okay, let's think about the obvious how if people are sitting more, then they're not burning all the calories that they're taking in. That's probably one of the reasons why this is happening. But they did a, you know, sort of a sub-experiment within that where they reduced the number of calories that the people took in to sort of level out with how much energy they're spending by sitting. And they found that the insulin sensitivity still wasn't completely corrected by doing that. So this, you know, made them think that aside from just having a surplus of energy of calories in your day, that there's something about sitting that affects the insulin action.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. And the the follow-up that's coming to my mind is what does this do for cognition? Because it sounds like this is really slowing down the body and its metabolism. Mm. And um, as someone who cares about mind one wonders if the mind is also going to slow down in correlation with that. I don't know if that was in those studies or not, but that's an interesting
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question sort of as a jumping off point. And the, one of the themes with uh, sitting is that there still isn't, there aren't that many good experiments out there. So this was one experiment. There's another experiment I'm going to talk about, but those are kind of two of the major experiments. There aren't that many scientific experiments that people are doing with sitting and figuring out how it affects health. Um, not yet. Maybe after this podcast.
1: Yep. Get out there. Solve all the world's problems hey, humanity. We need you.
0: <laughs> so the next study that I'm going to talk about is... So Dunstan is the guy who wrote this review article, and he does a little bit of self-promotion by talking about his own study. So he, that study was more of an observational study. The next study that, they, that he did was a true experiment. So what they did was... They looked at overweight, middle-aged adults, and what they did was look at the effects of sitting sort of uninterrupted versus sitting with short two-minute bouts of activity where you walk on the treadmill, and they looked to see what kind of effect that had on your blood sugar after you eat and the insulin in your blood.
1: So just two-minute breaks, does it say anything about how intense the treadmill time had to be, or was it just like whatever they wanted?
0: So there were two ways that they did it. They had walking for two minutes every 20 minutes with light intensity okay. walking, so 3.2 kilometers an hour, which I'm not sure how fast that is in That's miles. That's
1: still pretty fast. Okay. Um. So three...
0: Yeah, do Sorry. some fancy uh, so math. Okay.
1: 5K is 3.1 miles, so... 3K has got to be like one and a half-ish miles, give or take. So that's still a pretty decent clip. Okay. um, Because some of the tread desking studies that I looked at Mm -hmm. a long time ago said that like one mile an hour was the light threshold. Okay. For reference.
0: Okay. And then they also did a group where... You walked for two minutes every 20 minutes with moderate intensity treadmill walking, so 5.8 to 6.4 kilometers an hour.
1: So that's probably closer to what people actually walk, which is probably roughly, what, three, four miles an hour? Probably, yeah. If you're really trying to tear down the the sidewalk (laughs) in Baltimore and not get murdered.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Cody, you don't spread these misconceptions about our beautiful city of Baltimore. <laughs> it's the
1: greatest city in America, according to the benches. And I will say that I've not yet been murdered. And it's uh, it's pretty nice not being
0: murdered. <laughs> so what they did was they took the same people and they made them do these three things. So they had... The group do uninterrupted sitting, do the sitting two minutes of light walking every 20 minutes for the last five hours, and then do two minutes of moderate intensity walking every 20 minutes during the last five hours. And then at the end of all three of those tests, they gave everyone a standard drink to drink that had 75 grams of carbohydrates and 50 grams of fat in it. And they gave this to the people after... Two hours. So, you know, everyone kind of sat for two hours and then, you know, you either kept sitting, you did the light walking, or you did the faster walking after getting that drink. And then they checked the glucose and insulin, you know, throughout that five hour period. And so they found that they, they did this like measurement thing of insulin or no positive incremental area under the curves, which I think is like an integral in calculus it's you know kind of just like a fancy way to measure glucose and insulin whatever they wanted to do okay. but they found that the glucose level was lower after both of the the activity break groups it was 24% lower in the light group 30% lower in the moderate group
1: so that's some good news it sounds like it doesn't necessarily take much to bring it down
0: totally right like that wasn't too fast of a walking speed And then, once again, the insulin number as well was down by 23% in the activity break groups versus the uninterrupted sitting group. And interestingly, they didn't notice uh, statistically significant, which means if you run the numbers, maybe Cody can even describe this better because he's more of a researcher. Yeah, can you do that?
1: So. There are two kinds of significance that we're probably going to run into again and again. Clinical significance is probably the one that's going to be more useful to us, and that's whether there's like a meaningful difference. Statistical significance means that after performing um, some strictly defined tests, um, the scientific consensus is that there is a true difference between the groups or among the groups.
0: Yes. Okay. So it's like statistical significance is the numbers are different at the end of the day, and then clinically significant is the numbers are different and it makes a difference in the experience of the people.
1: Yeah, and the classic example is you might be able to show that beyond the shadow of a doubt, taking this drug will make your cold go away, I don't know, half a day faster or something, but you might decide that that's not worth the risk of whatever side effects are associated with that drug.
0: True. Okay, so they showed that the, there was no statistical significance between the um, activity groups.
1: Okay, so what they found then was that even just getting out and doing a little bit of super light activity made a difference.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: That's, that's kind of a hopeful message.
0: Yeah, right. It's like it's not that hard to do, it seems. Aside from just getting yourself up out of the chair, it doesn't seem like you have to do that much.
1: See, that's something that I thought was interesting from my Tai Chi training is that I think culturally there's a big emphasis, with the notable exception of yoga, on if you're doing exercise, it has to be like wearing spandex and sweating your ass off and like doing um, something real serious. And I think what this is starting to point to is that there can be a lot of shades of gray and just making small changes consistently might really help your health.
0: Totally. That's kind of cool. Totally, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It's not that um, bleak and gloomy and sort of doomsday material worthy. The, you know, these are the two sort of main studies that we have so far on uh, sitting and, you know, in terms of experiments with sitting. The things that we really need with studies that will come in the future are figuring out how long you need to interrupt your sitting, what type of stuff you need to do your sitting, you need to vary your sitting with, whether that means you have to actually walk or if you just have to stand, and then how sort of often you have to do it. So these are all questions that hopefully will be answered in the future.
1: It sounds like we've got a lot to learn, but certainly the evidence seems to be pointing to the idea that just some disruption is really helpful.
0: Absolutely. Okay. And now I'll tell you about two sort of more interesting studies that are a little bit less relevant to our daily living, but they have done animal studies where they've shown that sort of not contracting your muscles, not stimulating them to to basically move, which is what happens when you sit for a long time, that has been shown to dampen the activity of one of the enzymes, which is just like a protein that helps things move along in the body. One of the enzymes that is necessary for you to pick up fat and cholesterol in your muscle. And make good cholesterol, called HDL.
1: So we need to fidget.
0: Oh, yeah. All right. That's what I'm thinking. I've always been a fidgeter, and I feel like I've always been told to stop fidgeting. But now I think I'm just going to fidget freely.
1: Mm. You should tell them that you're uh, doing it to live longer.
0: (laughs) I'm doing it for my muscle enzymes and my cholesterol.
1: Got to keep that HDL up.
0: (laughs) And then there's one really exciting study, which we don't have the results to yet, but it is called, wait for it, Project Stand. Sedentary time and diabetes. All right. So this is an intervention study, which means they're actually testing a plan for people, testing something that people should do. And... This is sort of important because we really need to figure out whether these sorts of experiments can stand ah, can stand in the real world, whether it's actually feasible to interrupt your sitting with brief moments of activity, whether this is um, actually shown to have a benefit. And so the project stand is a randomized control trial, which is like the Cadillac of experiments. You know, you're testing something with two groups.
1: Yeah, and the the key thing that makes randomized controlled trials great is randomization. So the idea is that you're never going to know all the different variables that could be affecting your population that you're not keeping track of. But by closing your eyes and throwing half of the group into one condition and half of the group into the other condition, you hope that those other factors are going to randomly balance out into those two groups. So there's a much higher chance that your conclusions are going to be based on what you are actually trying to change and not some other variable that was present in one group that you weren't paying attention to.
0: That's true. Like, if you put all the codies in one group and the cavitas the in another, then you're probably going to have some skewed results. Mm. So this trial is looking at ways to reduce sedentary behavior sitting in young adults who are at high risk of getting type 2 diabetes. And this is going to be pretty cool because I feel like it's different than just saying, hey, you should exercise more. It's actually thinking about how to sit less. So stay tuned If we get those results back in the next couple of years and this podcast is still running, we will let you guys know. So now we kind of get to the last leg of our journey together. And that is what are sort of the ways that this information impacts public health and, you know, what we would recommend as physicians to everyone. So the first thing that I will say is that this article does mention that we Need better evidence to figure out how to really develop uh, specific recommendations. Certain things that we need to explore further are dose-response relationships. So, how is basically asking how much of interruption of sitting do we need to show a benefit? Is it is it better the more activity you do, or is there a certain point where it plateaus and then we can kind of say, okay, you just need to do this much. The next thing is focusing on why does this cause bad health effects? What is the reason? The next thing is thinking about, is it feasible? Is it possible to change prolonged sitting in certain situations? Can we, is this possible for kind of all situations, for all people, for all occupations?
1: Yeah, the thing that worries me the most is things like trucking and other driving tasks. It's like, you know, if you're in an office, sure, you can get up. But, um, I mean, if you have to drive a vehicle, there's really no way around having to be in the sitting, sitting position. But I wonder, I mean, if there was strong enough evidence if we could theoretically redesign these uh, vehicles. I mean, like, big rigs are enormous. There would have to be mm-hmm. a way that you could stand and drive one, I would think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. Because otherwise I feel like, it'll become one of the sort of factors into health disparities, which is inequalities in health that we notice due to various things like your socioeconomic status or your access to healthcare and things that sort of impact your health that are more social. You know, then is it going to be that people who have jobs that require more sitting are going to have worse health and they really can't change that about themselves and that's kind of an injustice, you know? Is that going to be something we're going to be dealing with in the future?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a real concern.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I mean, a lot of the I know a lot of like manufacturing type jobs are going away, but insofar as they exist, I know that a lot of them are not really set up to be on your feet.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And then the other things that will need more research to decide are how you can maintain these sorts of changes in your behavior, and what are the benefits, the long-term benefits of these changes. So there's a couple recommendations that I wanted to go over. And then I also do want to go over two articles. So one is... This review article in Preventative Medicine about uh, standing versus treadmill discs in the workplace. Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> so curb your enthusiasm, Cody, because there's unfortunately not enough data yet. But I'll tell you what they found. Okay. So this was a review article, which is basically an article that groups together lots of information from other articles. It's kind of like, it's super meta.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I try and think of review articles kind of like a cutting edge textbook. Like they've kind of grabbed all the stuff that's out there, tried to make sense of it. And it's so specific and so recent that it hasn't found its way into like a big book yet. But when you're trying to do research, it's a super uh, helpful resource. And when you're trying to do clinical medicine that's on the edge, you can't always wait until something's been fully digested and packed into one of the, the mainline texts.
0: That's a great way to put it. So this is, yeah, exciting exciting textbook chapter waiting to be published. So this was a review article by Brittany McEwen and a couple other researchers. And they basically looked online at lots of different articles that met their sort of search criteria about standing in treadmill desks and they, the main things that they found were that treadmill discs had the greatest improvement in various sort of measurements, like your blood glucose after you eat, your good cholesterol, your anthropometrics, which how would you define that? So correctly?
1: anthropometrics would have to be like uh, body measurements, I think. Okay. Like, Perfect. Uh, like your waist circumference and some of those things that are linked to the, uh, other like health outcomes.
0: Okay. So, treadmill desks had the biggest effect on all of those things. Standing desks, they had fewer changes. But standing and treadmill desk both showed mixed results for improving your psychological well-being. And they both had little impact on your work performance. Hmm.
1: So little impact in terms of not better or worse?
0: Yeah, exactly. In terms of not making you uh, less productive at work.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It sounds like like one of the big pieces of pushback that I saw in some of the r- reading I've done in the past was that there's a concern that treadmill desks will distract you. And I know anecdotally I've found that it, certain things you just can't really do while walking. Like if it requires really hard thinking, it's really tough but if it's more like light reading or just getting like basic tasks done it's it's more doable but it's interesting
0: yeah and so we still need more information but it seems like the standing and treadmill desks both have some use in breaking up your sitting time potentially improving parts of your health and Hopefully, we'll be able to do another podcast episode looking you know, more into sitting and standing desks. The recommendations I wanted to go over coming, again, from this review article that I've been referring to by, what's his first name? Dunstan, David Dunstan. So the recommendations that this review article gives are the following, and Cody, let me know what you think of each one. Standing and taking a break from the computer every 30 minutes. That seems pretty doable. Okay. St- taking st- and this is more for people who work in offices or sitting environments, which is similar to who you are. Taking standing breaks in sitting time during long meetings.
1: That makes sense. That, that seems like it would be harder because there's that social pressure. Like, if you're just working on your own, it makes more sense. But... Um, And, like, if you're working on your own, I think of using something like the Pomodoro method where you do a 25-minute block of work and a Mm -hmm. five-minute break. That could be a really good opportunity to get up and get this. um, Oh, yeah. But, yeah, the meetings one I feel like would require more of a cultural change.
0: Yeah, I think everyone would have to buy into that. Mm. And I'm just thinking of my own self. I feel like some of the times that I do a lot of sitting are when I'm talking to patients. I don't know if they would respond well to me standing up in the middle of talking to them.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, you got to weigh the risks and benefits. I mean, you know, when you're having a really heavy conversation with a patient, it's probably not the time to worry so much about your long-term cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah. will probably make that one up later.
0: <laughs> okay, next recommendation is standing during phone calls. Oh,
1: that makes sense.
0: I think that one's doable. I think I could actually do that. And no one would care, because I'm talking on the phone.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And some people might even prefer it if you're, like... If you were in, like, a cubicle environment, for example, people might like it if your phone calls were, like, out away from their space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If it
1: was viable to do so.
0: Next recommendation is walking to a colleague's desk instead of phoning or emailing.
1: See, now, that could have some fringe benefits as well, because I think that people respond better to that. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot in psychiatry and I imagine in in medicine as well is how to deal with uh, on-call situations and responding to nurses' pages and um, requests of that sort. And it does seem to make a big difference if you show your face and try and respond to a problem in person. So it might be a good way to improve your relationship with your coworkers and get some of these health benefits.
0: I agree. I think this one's totally feasible, and I think it encourages me to just do more of it. Calling on the phone or writing an email, sometimes writing an email takes longer than it does to just go and talk to someone, and you get that added benefit of walking. Next recommendation is using a height-adjustable desk to give you the option of changing between sitting and standing at work.
1: That makes sense, and those are all the rage these days. That's one thing I've thought about a lot at home is, like, I've got my computer setup. And it's only really viable to be used as a seated desk right now, but maybe I'll try and get one of those adjusters at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a potentially easy and uh, very effective option for anyone who can afford to, you know, make a workspace that, that, uh, enables you to do that.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that does bite about this is you bring up the idea of socioeconomic disparities is these are definitely luxury items. When you talk about things yeah. like standing desks and treadmill desks, I mean, these are not going to be the priorities of people who are down on their luck. So yeah, I think it is important to think about trying to make accommodations. I mean, If you're listening to this and you're in any kind of position where you can try and provide standing desk type resources or workplace opportunities for people to get up and get a little bit more movement in, you might be able to help people stave off some of these cardiac health consequences, potentially in populations that don't get a lot of opportunities to do so disenfranchised folks, people who have to bust their butts to make ends meet and don't have the luxury of getting the several thousand dollar treadmill desk.
0: Yeah, I agree. Interestingly though, I feel like blue collar jobs are split kind of half and half where some of them require a lot of movement all day long.
1: That's true. My dad was a auto mechanic until he had to go on disability and essentially retired as a result. And he had lots of opportunities to move around. The corollary to that is that I think there needs to be a lot of attention paid on moving safely because mm, he didn't yeah. he didn't put a lot of effort into always protecting himself. Like if he was trying to move some heavy object, sometimes there wasn't the time to go and do it the mm. absolute safest way. And okay. he was just trying to like move the the engine block quickly. And I think doing things like that for decades ended up catching up with it
0: that's a very good point maybe we can have another podcast on proper ways to move
1: yeah we can get some like ot pt yeah. types on here yeah i'm all for it
0: me too the next thing i want to talk about before i end on our fun line is the what are the recommendations By the CDC. We'll call them the CDC. What are the CDC recommendations for for exercise, for moving vigorously, for high-intensity to moderate-intensity exercise? Just so you guys know, because that's still beneficial. That's still an official recommendation. But it seems like we also now need to think about sitting. So the recommendation is that you should get at least 30 minutes of moderate-intensity physical activity at least five days a week. And what is moderate-intensity physical activity? It is brisk walking, water aerobics, cycling at less than 10 miles an hour, (laughs) playing doubles tennis, ballroom dancing, and general gardening.
1: Okay. That's kind of an eclectic list. (laughs) Yes. I think I actually posted something on the uh, Twitter recently. Uh Uh-huh. There was a list of like the calorie burn of various exercises that could be kind of interesting to refer to on this note.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think these recommendations are maybe eclectic just to show that you can do it in very different ways and if you can find something that is similar to that level of activity then you're good to go
1: yeah it is interesting to me the emphasis on moderate activity because our culture is so much about this like little block of gym time yeah the thing to do and i mean 30 to 40 minutes five days a week is a lot for most people yeah. i mean it you know congratulations if you're able to do that but if you get busy, certainly in some lines of work, that's not always the most manageable. So it, it is interesting to hear that a lot of non-traditional fitness activities like gardening are um, classified as moderate activity. Mm-hmm. But I think the follow-up is what is the role of intense activity for those people who are capable of it in this whole picture? And I think that's going to be interesting to look into in the future.
0: Yeah, it seems like we have an entire exercise series on our hands.
1: We'll call it a suite, <laughs> the exercise suite, and we'll get it all up in the wiki, and it's going to be great.
0: <laughs> so this is, you know, I'll end with my fun line from this review article, and then, Cody, I want to hear your thoughts, what you thought of the podcast, and how this might change what you're going to do on a daily basis. Okay. So the recommendation at the end of the suite review article is, Stand up, sit less, move more, move often.
1: Seems reasonable. I feel like we got a lot of unanswered questions still, but I think there's definitely enough there to shift the focus from just exercising to also the sort of non-exercise life you are living. And I guess to answer your question of how I would change I think that I'm going to put a lot more emphasis on putting those breaks in. I do think that in the course of my day, it's pretty reasonable to get up and move around around every half hour. I can think of a few activities where it's not going to make sense, but it doesn't seem completely unreasonable to make time for a little bit more standing. And it's something that I could easily... Imagine mixing in with, you know, walking to get coffee and maybe doing a little bit of Tai Chi or if people know yoga or dance moves or anything like that, this is an opportunity to just get a little piece in here and there and break up the monotony, shake up your body reminded that it's not supposed to just be static all the time, but One of the things I hope we're able to dive into more in the future now that we're seeing these effects are what's going on cognitively, like I said. Yeah. And if we can eventually learn more about the specific benefits and the specific dose-response relationships like Mm -hmm. you alluded to, that would be really interesting. But I think we definitely have enough to know that something is a lot better than nothing and that the all sedentary with one little block of gym time is not really enough to give you a free pass
0: i agree this researching this topic really made me rethink how i look at activity i was definitely at my best one of those whatever they called active couch potatoes I thought that was the way to go, that I was active when I was, and then I you know, had a free pass to veg. Now I think it really inspires me to work in little minutes of activity throughout my day because I'm realizing that this may not you know, help me get muscles or get endurance, but it might just be helping me in the long run in terms of not getting heart disease, not getting diabetes, not dying early. And I think that I have not been thinking about those things as much as I have been thinking about increasing my endurance and my strength.
1: Yeah. And one wonders if more of the wearable devices like uh, the Fitbits and things, things like that are going to help give us more data because it is tough to focus on health habits when you're not getting any positive feedback. And truly, most of us aren't going to run around getting cholesterol draws every couple of months to see if there's a difference.
0: Yeah, it's true. And it's it sounds like we don't have great studies yet, but it sounds like a lot of these benefits are going to come in the long run. So we may not notice them as easily.
1: All right. Well, there we have it. I mean, I, I still think that diet pop may be the, the worst of these two things, but I think that there's a lot more to sitting than I thought there would be. It's a shame that the standing and tread desking business seems to still be an unsettled issue, but I'm glad that people are on it, and I hope that we're able to maybe revisit this when things are uh, a little bit more settled in the future. But clearly, those of us who are standing, walking, drinking water, and avoiding diet pop and, and probably regular pop are going to be better off in the long run and having to contend with a little bit less diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and those sorts of things. And the people who have to face those conditions would uh, have an easier time managing them with those lifestyle choices.
0: I agree. I think this is very interesting sort of uh, two topics to dissect. Both things that you could make a change in pretty easily that might have huge benefits for you.
1: Yeah. That's what's kind of cool is that neither of these changes are earth shattering. You're not going to have to like gear yourself up for weeks to, to make either of these, uh, changes. So, I mean, I, I've already started to implement the diet pop removal and it seems like my appetite's gone down in the last couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that, uh, maybe there's something to that. And after hearing this, I think I'm willing to try using that, to, uh, Pomodoro system to get some more breaks in and see if that ends up giving me a little bit of extra pep
0: yeah or just extra life (laughs) for sure
1: (laughs) Um, okay so yeah Camita you want to plug some things
0: yeah or do you want to plug some things because you've been exceptionally overshadowed in this podcast Uh, I'm
1: just giving you equal time (laughs) I will I'm going to plug the Humanity Against Disease Tai Chi Movement Moving Mindfulness Meditation and Resilience Training Workshop which has been moved to December 8th and 9th December 8th and 9th in uh, Baltimore at the Cooley Gym on the uh, Johns Hopkins campus this is aimed at healthcare practitioners of all stripes The aim is to find people who want to teach it to their patients and possibly become senior instructors down the line. And this is your chance to jump in on a distilled foundational form of Tai Chi that is designed to help people with post-traumatic stress disorder and other anxiety problems center and better cope with their... uh, At times, overwhelming levels of anxiety, while at the same time pursuing the other evidence based treatments, medication wise and therapy wise. So, I hope that uh, we'll be able to see some of you at that. The details are available on our Facebook and our Twitter account. And, Kavita, do you want to pitch those?
0: Sure. (laughs) Our. Facebook group is, if you type into Facebook, at Humanity Against Disease, you'll find it. And then our Twitter handle is at Against Disease.
1: Yeah, and we now have an Instagram.
0: What is our Instagram name? I'm super excited for this.
1: Our Instagram is also at Against Disease. You should talk to us, because the whole point of this is to like have a dialogue going, right? So... If you have a thing that you want to say about this or about diseases, things you want to see, things you don't want to see, etc., um, tweet at us at Against Disease, um, or message us on the Facebook at Humanity Against Disease, or send us an email at Was it Against Disease or Humanity Against Disease at Gmail?
0: I can't remember. No, we
1: will figure that out. Uh, tweet us or Facebook us, probably or. Message us on the new Instagram, which is also at Against Disease.
0: Direct message. Do they have that? Yeah, that's what it's called on Instagram. Okay, do that. (laughs) I think those are all the plugs. Uh, We will, at one point when we become super famous, have a P.O. box, but we don't right now, so you can't send us any physical letters.
1: Yes. If you want to badly enough, You can send us a direct message, and if we think that you're trustworthy and are not going to send us um, bioterrorism or explosives, we'll probably give you an address.
0: (laughs) Alright. Okay, bye. Bye!